Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for worship on this Sunday. I'm Harold, one of the pastors who serve at Christ Central of Southern California. I get to bring God's word to you today. Last week, we started a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Today is the second one. I'm going to read for us from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And I've entitled it, The Temptation and Calling of Jesus. Follow along with me. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, speaking of Jesus. And he, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word so far. Mark, the gospel author here, sets out to show and give us the real Jesus. To give us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we mentioned that Jesus Christ is easily at least in the top two or three most influential figures in all of world history. But according to the Holy Scriptures and billions of followers, Jesus Christ didn't just come to make a dent on world history. He came to save and recreate a whole new humanity for himself. How did he do that? How did he go about doing that? we got two episodes today. Two ways he does that. First, Jesus overcomes temptation. Second, Jesus calls people to believe and follow him. First, the temptation of Jesus Christ. Second, two characteristics to the calling of Jesus Christ. Two characteristics to his call. First, let's look at his temptation. Uh, C.S. Lewis, biblically, and you know, I think brilliantly imagined uh, in his book, Screwtape Letters, how uh, there are younger kind of beginner demons who would be sent to tempt uh, those who are young in their faith or maybe newborn Christians. Uh, then there were senior, more sophisticated, experienced demons who would be sent to tempt uh, the more mature. Along this line of thinking, and in Ephesians 6, uh, gives us the same kind of logic that there are different levels and gradations to demonic powers. Um, who would be sent to tempt Jesus? Who would be sent to tempt and bring about the fall of Jesus? Well, it was not a demon, it was Satan himself. Here this, pastor, uh, this passage tells us it was Satan himself. For 40 days, that, that is a long time, and it was out in the wilderness, the wilderness. I don't know if you've been out camping, but nothing like in today's climate, but like pitch dark and, and cold and 
possibly frightening because Mark mentions the detail of wild animals were with him. And in that state, although Mark does not give us an example of specific temptations, uh, we have other Gospels that give us a clue. And one example was, Satan came alongside to Jesus and tempted him to, just, just one time, Jesus, just one time, Jesus. Uh, I would like you, why don't you just prove to me or prove to yourself how close, how favored, how blessed, how anointed, how, how protected you are. Just test God. Just test God. Um, have him show up and, and do some kind of miracle uh, to make it easier on you and maybe also to show off how for real you are. Do you know what Jesus' response to that temptation was? In essence, Jesus responded by saying, My trust in God, my Father, is so foolproof. I don't need proofs. Uh, my trust in God, my Father, doesn't need any immediate or visual answers. And certainly Jesus did not need any public validations or outside approval. Satan would tempt and target Jesus all his life, not just here at the opening of the gospel. For if Jesus Christ sinned in the slightest way, in the slightest, we're not just talking about outward actions. We're talking about your innermost thoughts and motives. If Jesus slipped in the slightest way, he would have been totally disqualified to accomplish his mission to die for sinners. Uh, but look at chapter 1, verse 12, how it began, the way that Mark describes this. It was the Spirit who immediately drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, which, which you see, it signals to us, on the one hand, yes, Satan tempted Jesus to destroy him, to have him utterly fail in his work. But at the same time, if it was the Spirit who drove him out there, it signals that God had higher and better, albeit secret, plans. While Satan tempted Jesus to destroy him, God was testing. Yes, he did. He brought a test to his own son so that he would emerge only stronger, more prepared, filled with the Spirit to accomplish his mission. So this was a both a temptation from Satan and a test from God his Father at the same time. And it was on a grand cosmic scale. On a cosmic scale, this temptation and test took place. Uh, what do I mean by this? If you read the story of the Bible together, and it is the most marvelous book you can ever read because somehow it all fits together with Jesus Christ as the central, most dominant figure. You're going to find striking similarities and differences between Jesus here during his temptation and Adam, the first man that God created back in the Garden of Eden. Similarities and differences. You see, Adam, we'll call him the first Adam. He was in a garden. Jesus, whom a New Testament author would equate or liken to the second Adam. Jesus as the second Adam was in the wilderness. The first Adam, of course, enjoyed peaceful harmony with the animals. Here in the wilderness, Jesus was with wild animals or wild beasts. Now, Mark is the only one to include this detail of wild animals being with Jesus. Why did he include that? 
Remember from last week, Mark wrote to the very people who are being thrown to and torn apart by wild beasts. And so Mark, in his pastoral way, is giving those very people, here, I'm going to give you Jesus. Jesus, the one who went through everything you could ever go through. And he's going to walk with you right into the mouths of lions, but still bring you out invincible invincible and alive on the other side with him. But back to this first Adam and second Adam connection. You see, the first test for the first Adam was to trust and obey God unconditionally. Namely, Adam, do not eat from that one tree. Just don't eat from that one tree and you will live. But here we find And later on, we're going to find in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was to be crucified, the second test for the second Adam was the same. Trust and obey God unconditionally. But it could not have been harder, more difficult. Because the test for the second Adam was get hung up and die on a tree. The first test for the first Adam was to just don't eat from that one tree and you're going to live, you're going to live. But the second test for the second Adam was, go get crucified on a tree and die. Now, why is this even taking place? Paul gives us a a, a masterpiece, a gospel summary in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. And I, or anyone, could never do any better than the way he explains the similarities and the differences. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, which was Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. Listen, pay attention, folks. The gospel according to Mark and Romans chapter 5 is this. Contrary to all popular opinion, The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about imitation. It's about representation. See, whereas the first Adam failed and all humanity fell with him in his act of disobedience, there's a whole new humanity, a new humanity who can be justified and called righteous and saved by another man's obedience, the second Adam. You see, Christianity is not about can you live a good enough life to be loved and forgiven by God. No, the gospel tells you you are already loved and forgiven by God because of a substitute Savior, a substitute Savior. So you see, Jesus overcoming all temptations is a prerequisite for him to be the sinless Son of God who laid himself down so that he can die in the place of others. If Jesus had ever sinned, he would have been disqualified because his death would have just been justly deserved. He would only have to die for himself. But because he overcame all temptations, he lived a sinless, perfect life 
he can now lay himself down for those who deserve it. And we can get what he deserves. Now, right after Jesus overcomes and passes the test, if you will, he turns around and calls his first disciples. And I want you to notice what Jesus does in calling his first disciples, he's calling them to do exactly what he, God the Son, does with his own father. Trust and obey me unconditionally. So let's look at his calling. First, the first characteristic. His calling is costly. Yes, it is very costly. Look at verses 16 to 20 once again. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jumping down to verse 19, going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And immediately he called them. You see, Jesus called Simon and Andrew first to leave their nets, to leave their work, to leave their livelihood, if you will. Most likely, it gave them a sense of purpose, accomplishment, maybe even great pride and joy. If you're good at what you do, it is not just a livelihood. It could actually become your life. Jesus calls those first two men, leave it all behind. Then he goes a little further and calls James and John, who evidently were fishermen as well. But notice that Jesus calls them to leave their father, Zebedee. Here's a question. It's a very, very crucial question. If those men had never left their nets, and commentators will tell you, please don't have a misconception, alongside the beautiful Sea of Galilee, these were probably not poor fishermen, unsuccessful uh, uh, fishermen, but business was booming. But if those men had chosen to just stay with their nets, even while Jesus called them, follow me, and James and John also chose to remain with their father, Zebedee, <clears throat> could they have still followed Jesus? You see, in other words, my friends, what I'm asking you is, can you still follow Jesus without leaving anything behind? Can you follow Jesus without leaving anything behind? You say, well, I mean, pastor, of course, you know, Jesus isn't literally calling me or you uh, to leave my work or my family. He's not literally asking me to do that. Please don't misread the scriptures here. Well, I would like to turn it back and ask you this question. Certainly he may not be. But what then does he mean? What does he mean at all? What does Jesus ask or call for in his followers? See, how do you know if you're following him at all? And here's how you would know. Does it cost you? Have you left anything behind? You see, for Simon and Andrew, following Jesus cost them their employment. Perhaps their passion for life or an independent life. Now, of course, here in the West, this is a non-starter. It's absurd. Then Jesus called James and John to leave their own father. I mean, just bring dishonor. Go against familial and social customs and piety. And this is most offensive in the East. Either way or both ways, it seems too costly. It seems too costly. They both seem 
crazy. Nevertheless, this is exactly what Jesus calls for. His calling is costly. There is a cost or a cross in every Christian life. What? What? Pastor, what, what are you talking about today? You know, I, I really like those other messages, and I've heard a lot of gospel messages that seem to tell me, hey, to believe in the gospel should cost me nothing. But what are you talking about here? The calling is costly. I, I thought it should cost me nothing. Yes, in verse 15, it says, believe in the gospel. That's straight from the lips of Jesus. Believe in the gospel. And on the one hand, to believe in Jesus as your Savior does cost you nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is free of charge. Because it cost Jesus himself everything to forever love and forgive and adopt and seal you for paradise with him. But also, please look back at verse 15. Look at it. Before Jesus said, said believe in the gospel, he says, Repent and believe in the gospel. And if you look at verses 17 and 20, here 17, it says, follow me. Verse 20, immediately he called them. He called them to do what? To follow me. You see, it's not just to believe. You have to repent and believe. Or you have to believe and follow. And to repent and follow Jesus, that can cost you everything. Oh, hear me loud and clear. I don't want any confusion over this. To believe in Jesus costs you nothing. But to repent and follow Jesus, it'll cost you everything. Put it a different way, to be loved and saved from the eternal punishment of my sin in hell costs me nothing. But to love and live like Jesus, and live all out for Jesus, and hopefully invite a lot of family and friends to go into heaven with me because of Jesus. That'll cost you everything. Now, Pastor, I, I, I've never really heard or grasped this before. I, I've never really uh, understood the gospel. I guess this is the whole gospel put together. Yes, well, pay attention to Jesus. Repent and believe. Believe and follow. Believe and follow. Oh, so does that mean that I can just, you know, follow sometimes? Can I follow in certain set of circumstances or conditions? How about, how about just enough? Can I follow, you know, just, just enough, like barely enough? Just always stay at a kind of a beginner level. Stay at the starter line. Can I, can I follow half-heartedly? Friends, pay attention again. Jesus never asked for this. He never asked for that. And he never accepts it. It's believe and follow me unconditionally. No terms. <laughs> uh, President Joel Kim of Westminster, California, gave a beautiful message over this weekend on the uh, rise of religious restrictions and persecution against Christians all around the world today. And he shared a story of Indonesia, how he met one student 
who, in order to graduate from the seminary there, you have to plant a church. You talk about a, a graduation requirement. You got, you got to plant a church. That means there has to be new converts on account of you. Well, this student went back into his home village, which was over 99% Muslim. And even in his home village, he could not shop at, his, shop at his local market. Forbidden to shop there. He would have to travel into another town in order to get any food or any supplies. He was shunned and avoided by his local neighbors. To follow Christ, to be a servant for Christ, has always been costly, and it always will be. And for this student, it took him six years until he saw his first convert, and a church was planted. Now, let's face it. I don't bring the illustration in any way to shame or just guilt us here in the West, but we are probably nowhere in danger of that kind of isolation or any outright physical violence. But... There is a relational, a social, if you not, uh, if you will, political and even economic type of shaming going on. Is is there not? Is that not on the rise? Even a type of cancel culture. And my friends, there's plenty of cancellations that may be well deserved, but if you're canceled out because you are humbly and accurately reflecting Christ, this is something that the Bible continues to tell us. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is the cost of your call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, he described counterfeit Christianity in the following way. It's forgiveness without repentance, grace without discipleship, confession without crucifixion, Christianity without Christ as Lord. There are symptoms of this kind of counterfeit Christianity. I'll just give us two real quick. First is, um, there's a lot of folks who want good reasons. You, know, you, you want explanations. Uh, you want things to make sense to you. Well, that's good to a certain degree, of course. But, listen, if you only, only obey and follow Jesus when it makes sense to you, when you have good, sufficient reasons can I suggest you're not really following Jesus, you're just following your own reason. You're following like palatable current culture. You're following common sense. You're following your self-interest. The test for the first Adam and the test for the second Adam was what? Trust and obey me unconditionally, even when you don't get good reasons. Here's a second symptom of counterfeit Christianity is if, if someone were to listen in to your prayer life, um, would it sound just like a business meeting? You, you know what I mean by that? That if and when you do pray, it's always this. If, God, you do this, then I will do that. Or how about God? Or what about this? Or only but wait. Does it sound like you're negotiating all the time? You see, if you're following bottom lines, goals, dreams, and that's the entirety of your relationship with God, you don't have a relationship. What you're doing is you're just using Jesus to get there. You're just doing business with God. Do you want to know what the prayer life of those who follow Jesus, do you know what that sounds like? 
It actually sounds like they're in, they're in love. It sounds like they're in love. You know, if you're at, remember when we used to go to diners or any kind of restaurant and you just kind of eavesdrop, you overhear a conversation. It's just so apparent. Those who are doing business and then those who are in love. You know, the Bible actually tells us to examine ourselves from time to time. And of course, I find it there are probably no more opportune time and conditions and almost normalcy to do this, uh, to do self-tests at home, right? A self-test at home. Let me give you an easy, safe, but accurate spiritual reality check, right? You can just do this when you're all alone. Pray. Okay, just pray. And I want you to examine, is there a desire to pray? Can you pray? What comes out in your prayer? Friend, you might have gone through church all your life, but is there a familiarity, a sense of familiarity there with God, or is it just all formality? Is it just a religious exercise, a ritual, or is there a real sense of God close to you and all out for you. This is a really easy but accurate self-test. Is there any love? Is there love there? The temptation of Jesus, he overcomes them all. The calling of Jesus, yes, it is costly. But the second characteristic, is his calling is grace. His calling is grace. You know, in Jesus' day, students would search and probably clamor and compete to find and choose their rabbis. Mark shows us here that Jesus had an otherworldly type of authority and approach. He does the choosing and calling. You and I don't get to apply You don't even get to present or prove yourself first. With Jesus, he does the calling. And unless he calls, we cannot connect or have a relationship with Jesus. So who does he call? What kind of people does Jesus call? On what basis? You might figure, Pastor, I mean, it's obvious what type of people Jesus calls. I mean... He calls those spiritually interested types, those open, kind of weird types, you know, always into spirituality. Uh, Even better, you know, those types who went to seminary and they're educated. And it's pretty obvious to me that they're very devoted and religious and uh, effective as leaders. Um, Of course, these are the types that Jesus would call, right? No, you need to read the Gospels. That type that I just uh, described are the ones that are most offended by Jesus and they opposed and hated him the most. Who does Jesus call? What type does he call? Oh, you know, the naturally brave and confident and strong and success-driven types, right? (laughs) You don't know the story of Peter? Remember Peter, the life and preaching of Peter? That's what this Gospel Mark is all based upon. Jesus called Peter to, upon him, I'm going to build my church. And do you know when he called him? He called Peter after, after he royally failed, he had repeatedly and publicly betrayed Jesus because of cowardice. 
Jesus called Peter not when he was so strong and confident and brave, but he called him after he lost all his self-confidence and bravery and zeal. Oh, okay, so Jesus is not calling the spiritually interested or ideal types, or he's not calling the, you know, the strong and successful types. Of course, he's calling those really, uh, you know, those avid fanatical types. You know, there's a lot of them running around here these days. It, it just unnerves me. You know, fanatics, they just go overboard. They're extreme about things like just any good cause. They get attracted to, to action and hype and drama or maybe a charismatic leader. And maybe in the best scenario, there are fanatics who want to change the world for better. And yet in the Gospels, we find again with Jesus. This is not the type of people he called. He purposely avoided crowds. The crowds would come and go. Jesus had a habit. I mean, it was a kind of a crazy habit. of He would weed out consumers and pretenders. And he actually kept himself away from people who he knew deep inside didn't really want him. They just wanted things from him. They wanted magic tricks and they wanted a miracle from him. And he actually kept his identity secret from those who would misrepresent and misuse him. So who does Jesus call? What type of people does Jesus call? You know, his calling is grace. Here's who Jesus called. He calls the most unlikely people listening in today right now. He calls the weak, not the strong. He calls those of you who feel and know how poor you are, not the rich. He calls people who have failed, not the people who've always succeeded. He calls the outcast, not those who are always in the in crowd. He calls sinful people, not saintly people. He calls the sick, the desperate, and the needy. He never calls those who feel well all on their own. This is the call. And if you ever get to hear Jesus call your name, let me assure you this day, the only reason... Jesus comes calling for you is because he must love you so. Oh, how he must love you so. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, God explains why he chose that little fledgling people uh, called Israel. Quote, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more numbered than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. But it is because the Lord loves you that he chose you and he calls you. It's simply because it must be that the Lord loves you. So, yes, the calling of Jesus is costly, very costly. The cost is total, but his calling is also grace, and it's full of love for you. See, if you consider the cost of what it means to believe and follow after Jesus... You know, relational and social shame. Maybe you can't date anymore the same person. 
maybe you can't spend your money like you used to. Maybe you can't vote on certain issues like you used to. Maybe you need to be a lot more brave and outspoken on that justice issue. Or maybe you need to quiet down and be a lot more patient and wise and humble and not over-speak on certain issues in ways that just don't reflect Christ. There are plenty of costs, even right here in the West. But as you consider the costs and count the costs, could you please also appraise the surpassing value of following Jesus and all that you gain in Him? Just like Apostle Paul did in Philippians chapter 3. Because Jesus, He counted His own costs, but still He came after you and for me. He left His usual work. He left His Father's side. He left his father's throne. He left home. He left home. And it cost him everything. Cost him his voice. Cost him his life. It cost him everything. But if he can get you, if you can hear him calling after you, the scriptures would say, Jesus did it with pure joy. He did it for all such the joy. Today you can call on the name of Jesus. Right here, right now, you can believe and follow after Jesus. And your life will never be the same. Right here on the spot, you call on the name of Jesus. You believe that he's a son of God who came to take your place, die for your sins, become your substitute savior, and you give your life to follow after him, your life cannot and will not end the usual way. It's not going to end with loss, with regret, fear, guilt, loneliness, and shame. It cannot. Your physical death is only an entrance into perfect love, joy, Peace, reconciliation, glory, forever glory in the fullness of life with God himself. There's an old song that came to mind. Of course, I will not sing it for you, but the lyrics go like this. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Earnestly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Can I pray for you and pray for us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus to do the very things we fail to do and could never do for ourselves. O sinless Son of God, thank you for living and dying the death that I deserve. And I pray now by the movement of your spirit, help us to hear your call, to feel your grace and love for us. And to anyone whom you are calling right now, O oh Lord, bring them home. Take them to yourself. Hold them in your arms. Wash away all their sin.
and give them your life, a new and never-ending life. Oh, hear us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.